Cool, and we're recording. So, uh, good morning, Basarat. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of excited to speak to you again. I think the first time we spoke was at the React meetup, uh, probably a few weeks ago now. And there were a lot of really good presenters on that day, but I thought you specifically, you seem to be one of these guys when you speak, you have, you like a little bundle of energy. And I thought, you know, if I were to sit down and speak to someone for a little while, you'd probably be the most interesting. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, this is my first chance in this series to sit down with someone. Um, so the objective really for me was, uh, as I was saying before we started recording, um, to really number one priority and excuse for me to sit down and speak with people that I thought would be interesting. Um, and then also a chance for whoever I'm speaking with to discuss something that um, is of interest to them and also to build a profile because I found going to meetups, going to conferences, these sorts of things, you meet really interesting people um, and I ended up having these conversations with people that I thought, oh, you know, this is really interesting and I'm pretty sure that if anyone, someone else was standing around us, they'd probably find it interesting too. So that's basically it. Otherwise, there's no sort of plan or agenda or anything like that. But I thought um, we might start with uh, just a few basic questions to get the ball rolling and then we'll see where we go after that. So Sounds good, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, how about we start with that? Just a quick little hello and uh, tell the audience a quick couple of minutes synopsis professionally what you've worked on and how you ended up here. Um, like I said before, thank you for having me. I've been a Microsoft MVP for a few years at this point, uh, primarily for TypeScript, starting I think in 2015 or something. And the whole journey really began as uh, TypeScript was released in 2012. And there weren't that many great answers to a lot of questions that people had. So I read the TypeScript language specification and then jumped in on Stack Overflow, helped out a bunch over there. Actually have like 200K ranking on Stack Overflow, top contributor for TypeScript. Although that might change, there's a, another person who's doing an excellent job answering more questions nowadays. Um, personally, I've also written a book on Node.js that's also ages ago, reviewed a number of books, then I've done a lot of video content. I've done it on Egghead, more recently on Udemy, and then I'm also building my own platform called bullinart.com and sort of publishing a lot of that content for free on YouTube. And the plan is to, because I've done a lot of supportive work on Stack Overflow, I see the same kind of questions appear again and again, and I want to provide a great resource for those answers and then guide someone through the journey of learning JavaScript, then TypeScript, then React, then Playwright for end-to-end -end testing, and then even React Native, which brings me nicely to my day job nowadays, which is I am an engineering team lead for a company called Pepperstone, and I'm leading their X2 mobile platform. And uh, that is built with React Native, so that's where that comes from. And that's it for me, I guess. Cool. Um, I, I guess the first place to start with is, um, like, what got you into wanting to help other people? Um, not just from answering questions on Stack Overflow, but then developing mm -hmm. courses, things like that. Because I sort of imagine teaching as, as something some people probably like to teach and other people I'm sure hate it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what is it that fascinated you about it and made you want to go down that path? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a, a teacher at heart. And that's something that people have commented on a lot of my content as well. That uh, is an excellent teacher. And you've picked up on that as well. Um, I think it's it's the pattern of you learn something and you don't really learn something till you teach it at a basic level. And that's sort of why I, I'm, I'm more of a learner. I love learning new things. And like I mentioned, my journey into TypeScript was reading the language specification, which wasn't sort of designed for someone who doesn't know JavaScript or doesn't know even how language grammars work because it had the syntax forms that TypeScript supports mentioned within that in a very, in this thing called a BNF, which is um, like the grammar syntax for programming languages. And so, so I love learning. And then I don't believe that I've learned something till I've taught it enough. And then the rewarding portion of teaching is just too good. Um, I love getting the, the the joy that I see in people's eyes when they learn something, um, and the appreciation that they return in in when you've done a good job. That's sort of why I'm passionate about teaching. That's interesting. I think um, so. I guess from my perspective, um, I always think about when I'm working with other people. Um, let's say there's a team, you're managing a team, and the team's mm -hmm. about to start working on something that's a little different to what they've worked on before. Um, any tips or how would you approach this task of having to upskill your your team in some particular way um, in order to meet some upcoming challenge? Because I personally, um, I, I realized that first working with teams, especially in these leadership roles, um, I would mm -hmm. just use myself as a model. So uh, the way I learned everything was just I'd get a book, read the book, and then I'd have that skill. And I think I'm really different to other people. Um, mm -hmm. So how would you deal with this sort of problem? Yeah, there are definitely different ways that people learn. Some people learn by books, some people learn by videos, some people learn by podcast. And uh, what I try to focus on is what they should learn. So I have this document within our team, which is the team skills, which basically documents the different things that this team needs to know about. For example, they need to know about Firebase, React, TypeScript, of course, JavaScript, um, and then other services as well, for example, React Native. And then within React Native, there are other things, for example, React Navigation, and then Reanimation. So, so animation within React Native is its own thing. Most mobile apps are quite animation heavy, so it plays a critical role. So uh, we have different individuals that are sort of best for the different tasks. But what we try to do is that the tasks are picked up by whoever wants to pick them up. So if somebody wants to learn something that is not their skill, I actually actively encourage that. And there's another saying that your sprint one should look like your sprint 20, which means that if you have people that are only doing the things that they are great and that, 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 are, that they are great at, the speed of delivery might be faster, but then eventually there'll be a key man risk. There'll be a lack of knowledge about the whole system within the different teams. So if anybody goes on vacation, then things change. So it's really good to have a uniform understanding of the whole application amongst all the developers and the different skills amongst all the developers, which means that if someone picks up something that they're not familiar with, it's completely understood that they're going to be slower than someone else who has done this before. But that's something that we actively want to encourage. Yeah, I think that's um, something I've found that can be, what are the differences between a technical person and 
just a regular project manager, especially when it comes to developing software. Project managers, I think the way they think is in terms of schedules and deadlines, and mm -hmm. it has to be done as quickly as possible. And um, if it's off schedule, it's the worst thing in the world. But um, someone who's worked in technical fields, I think you appreciate the need to develop skills and the need to learn and understand something. Um, and and that, that sort of short-term thinking really is short-term because you after a while you you end up with this sort of talent risk that certain only certain people can work on something mm -hmm. um, and you might meet your schedule for this sprint or the next sprint but then after that it starts to be more difficult once you know um once the workflow doesn't line up exactly with the, the skills and talents of your team so yeah yeah i think that's a really important point um, I love working with the uh, project managers, BAs, delivery leads that have a technical background that they've done coding themselves. That really helps them have an, an inert, a uh, built-in understanding of how software development works and how things need to be done with certain practices in place. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, and I think the other thing I obviously I noticed about your background is that a lot of this is in front-end development. So was there a particular reason for that? Or is it just, that's those are the skills that you developed and then therefore those were the things you started to teach? Yeah, so I, um, like I mentioned, like one of the books that I wrote, the only book that I actually wrote myself, not, didn't co-author with anyone was, uh, actually that's not true. I have another book as well. Anyways, the first book that I published with APRESS, the so publishing house didn't self-publish, let's, let's put it that way, it was beginning Node.js. So really focusing on JavaScript was the thing. But before that, I've done a number of other programming languages as well. Actually, a release of Python was on my birthday. Um, and I was like, as, as a child, I was like, OK, this programming language is my destiny because it has released on my birthday. So that's like the universe giving me a sign. But clearly, I didn't stick with Python long enough. Uh, so I've done Python. I've done PHP. I've done C Sharp. And really, eventually, the focus was JavaScript. And one of the sayings there is that always bet on JavaScript. Uh, and it, I think the reason why I made that a conscious choice was the fact that that was the programming language of the of the web and, and really the internet. Um, the way a lot of us interact with a lot of services, they all started off as websites like Google, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft perhaps an operating system actually, that's not, not a great example, but modern ones like Amazon, uh, Facebook, they, they started off as websites. So. The programming language for that is JavaScript. That's why I focused on JavaScript. And then from Node.js, the progression towards the front end really happened because they, for JavaScript, a lot of the jobs were in the front end. And again, web uh, is front end. And I really saw the um, a gap of highly skilled engineers working in that space. It was quite commonly people that are new to programming are just, hey, build this UI, because for whatever reason, you guys Actually, when I started, you used to have script files on the file system <laughs> that, that you would concatenate yourself in an index.html, like bundlers were, were not a thing. Uh, so really, I, I, my origin was coming in as a senior dev, trying to make these workflows more uniform to what we were used to in the backend. Yeah. So if you're, just for a sec, I'm sort of putting myself in the shoes of a regular developer. Suppose you've learned JavaScript, you've got a job, you're working with a particular front-end 
framework like React or something. Mm -hmm. What do you think um, is the difference between, I think you just, you literally used the words, um, you know, senior developers, uh, what's the difference, with, what gets people to that level of being a better developer, more technical developer? Is it just sitting in front of a computer and writing enough code and over time through osmosis? Or is there something you should be doing as a professional to be improving your skills and getting there faster? So there are definitely different opinions uh, that everybody has about what, what defines a senior. For me, perfectly, uh, for me personally, uh, I'm not actually concerned about, uh, I'll talk about the different levels in a bit, but before that, I want to talk about the mindset of what makes a developer. And it's like, I've already used that term. It's about the mindset. It's not about the skills that the person has. It's about the fact that they are willing to learn and continuously evolve because that's how this industry works. Like you had to run Backbone, then you had to run Knockout perhaps, and you had to run React, and you, maybe you had Angular in the way as well. And then who knows what's next. And even if you have been using React for a while, there are new patterns. It used to be class components. Now it's function components. And there are a number of concurrency features. Then with like in our team in particular, it's React Native, which is still React, but it's React for mobile. Um, so it's and and then again, like within the React Native as well, there are so many things that I've mentioned as well. Like navigation is its own thing, the animation is its own thing. So and, and like there's a native side to it as well. So I don't expect someone to know all of these things over time. If you've worked in a team long enough and I'm in a very fortunate position when I'm leading a team that I'm not on hands, but I take that time and I spend that learning the different patterns and then bringing them back to the team so that they can master them themselves as well. Um, but the, the mindset there is that you want to learn new things, you want to continuously evolve. So that's what defines a developer for me. And like if I go back one level as well, I mentioned that anybody should be able to pick up anything, which means that someday they might be working on analytics. They would have to learn about Google Analytics, the dashboard, the website, how that exists. It's, it's sort of like one day you're using Word and you get really good at Word, and the next day you're using uh, Google Sheets and you need to become really good at Google Sheets. And you're not expected to be, be an expert in either of these things, but you should be able to look at them and sort of figure out how you can get the tasks that you want to do in them. So that's what defines a developer for me. And then what defines a senior developer for me, it's really dependent upon how the organization is structured. Uh, personally, like the senior developer is right before a principal in my mind. So I have sort of three categories. There's developers, there's senior developer, then there's principal. Of course, there are levels between them that are dependent upon other things. But for a senior developer, you are capable of doing a task by yourself. You are capable of asking for help if you need any help. You are capable of identifying which help you need and then perhaps driving the answers for those questions yourself as well. For example, reaching out to other teams and like, hey, this is something that I'm trying to do, but I'm unable to do this. And here's what I've tried. How do I fix this? Um, and then for a principal, I guess you are a mentor to other senior developers is how I view that. All right, cool. Um, I think that's interesting. I think, um, you know, uh, the way I look at it is that you have a combination of experience and then mm -hmm. you, you, the, the problem with the front end, especially, but, but all of software development is like this, that it's always a moving target and you need to, um, always be trying to upskill yourself in some way. It's never really enough to just sort of show up to work, complete your ticket and 
um, mm -hmm. and, and go home. Um, otherwise, after a while, you sort of start to lose touch, I think. Um, yes. It's, it's, and it's what makes our profession a little different to others. I'm sure that if, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of places where you might go to uni for a while, you might have some sort of training course. And then once you have <laughs> that basic set of skills, uh, you're basically done uh, for a long time, if not the rest of your career. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to move on actually to JavaScript specifically. And I think, you know, it's, it's a language that is sort of idiosyncratic. I think it's, you know, there are certain languages like Rust and Python, people who use them seem to fall in love with them. And I think that mm -hmm. JavaScript doesn't have that culture. And I think part of it is because, you know, you can choose for certain projects what language you write them in. But if you want to develop on the web, as you were saying, it's the front end is JavaScript and the back end can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think also the language itself, it has certain idiosyncratic parts to it. Um, you know, especially the way types get coerced. And there's there are heaps of these lists on the internet of, um, I don't know if the right word is gotchas or unexpected results um, mm -hmm. from certain operations. So uh, what do you think of JavaScript? And, uh, and I guess... What do you think of these lists? I'm sure you know the ones I'm talking about where um, you see some sort of bizarre result coming out of like some JavaScript operation, like adding a number with a string or an empty list or something mm -hmm. like this. Yeah, so um, there's, there's something that I learned, which is don't defend JavaScript. Uh, it came from interacting with a lot of people on Stack Overflow and, and on, on GitHub as well. I have like 400 repositories that I've created. Um, and like when I'm interacting with so many people, I also sort of also know which interactions I need to control in order to keep my own sanity. As an example is on Stack Overflow, I don't look at the responses to my answers. If my answer wasn't good enough or it needs, um, so, so sometimes like comments will be like, Hey, this is a great answer. Thank you for that. And sometimes like, this is not the relevant answer. And sometimes it'll be like, it's not the re not relevant answer, but I know that this was the relevant answer back then, but that things have moved on and it's no longer the relevant answer. But like saying that this is not the correct answer is one thing, but like you are wrong. This is the, this is not the right answer. I don't know why this is accepted is sort of what comments would come as well. <laughs> so I sort of have learned to manage what interactions I choose to be a part of. And one of the interactions that I don't choose to be a part of is defending JavaScript. If someone says that JavaScript is horrible and it's not great and I don't love it, I completely understand that. And I sort of move myself away from that conversation. I personally definitely love JavaScript. Um, and there are, and, and one of the reasons why I love it, I guess, is because TypeScript. TypeScript is just so fantastic. When you think about the number of things that you can do in TypeScript and the, the type ideas and the coding concepts that you can explain in TypeScript, uh, that sort of doesn't really exist in a lot of other programming languages. Let me describe that in a different way where if you think of code, code is data and flow of data. JavaScript is, and all of most programming languages are great at describing the flow of data, but describing the data and how that data is changing in that flow and sort of validating that. Let me describe validating a bit more. What I mean is when you write a function 
signature, you are basically saying that this is what I expect this function to do. And then TypeScript is responsible for making sure that the function body follows that signature, which sort of makes it like the body is the proof of the signature kind of thing. Uh, but the level of complexity at which you can describe these signatures and data in TypeScript is just amazing, which is sort of why I love TypeScript, which by proxy, because TypeScript is only for JavaScript, I sort of love JavaScript as well. Yeah, I think um, one of the really interesting things about languages is how flexible, especially type systems are. I assume it comes out mm -hmm. of research from computer science, but if you compare like the type system in... Um, TypeScript or Scala, or one of these more modern languages, where in fact you're not actually describing a large part of, of for, for, for a large part, you're not describing the type of anything. The type system can figure it out and it can even, mm -hmm. you know, work through your branches and figure out what something should have been, uh, figure out if there's some sort of ambiguity. I think it um, is really useful for the developer, obviously, because they can. Um, they get a lot of that protection from the type system without having to actually, without the verbosity of having to write it all out. And I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, my personal experience, I don't have a lot of experience with TypeScript. So I think that at that level, the type system does tend to be a little bit annoying. Um, it gets, um, I'm, to understand after a while, it gets out of the way, you, you get used to using it and it, um, then it's like a, a companion following you yep. along, helping you out. Um, but even if you're, if you're quite new, I think that a lot of the problems that you have with it, just regular JavaScript or, uh, again, another language like Python where you're not describing the types um, at compile mm -hmm. time. Um, even just the, from the moment you adopt it, I think you get a lot of efficiency. So I think the fact that well, I think JavaScript probably wasn't the, it wasn't suitable for the role that it has, the one language mm -hmm. that the whole of the web is supposed to depend on, and yeah. it looks like TypeScript is going to be the future. Um, so yeah, I think uh, there is there is a lot to defend, and I can understand if you if you don't want to defend it all the time on the internet. <laughs> I think there is something about the internet though that you tend to get the best of people and the worst of people. Yes. Like you, you know, it's an outlet. If you're really amazing in some sort of way, you could put it on the internet and you sort of broadcast your ideas to the whole world and you get, you know, that, that 0.1% of brilliant people have a platform and everyone gets to see it. And then on the other mm -hmm. end, you have this weird, bizarre way that people can interact socially. Like, it's it's fascinating almost how horrible the co the comments are on YouTube or Stack Overflow. Uh, I'm sure that these are people who would behave a lot differently if they were sitting in front of someone, and not mm -hmm. even from from bravery, the bravery standpoint. I think there's just the way that people behave. Um, I think it's a lot easier to be mean to someone if if yes. they're an anonymous username on the internet. Um, and I think it's, there's, a, there's a certain bravery to posting on Stack Overflow and just being able to say, nah, that's, you know, I'm just going to look past that. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and it doesn't, it actually doesn't mean anything. It's just internet background radiation, but people aren't always rational like that. I think it's really, yeah. So that's, that's really impressive. Um, 
Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you mentioned this, we kind of glossed over it, but you have written some books. Um, one, I think, was about an introduction to Node.js development. Yep. Um, do you want to go over those? And uh, maybe if you want to go through the books you've written, what they're for. So if you're new to JavaScript or Node development, you know, that's an example. And then also mm -hmm. what the process was like. Like um, I personally have written some long documents. Um, what's it like working with a, th uh, a publishing sorry, team? Yeah, a publishing team and, and being an author. Yeah, so the first book that I wrote was Beginning Node.js, published with Apress. Uh, it's really old at this point, and I started working on a second edition, but I abandoned that, and I'll talk about the reasons for that in a bit. But the process of that is really doing a lot of open source and then making connections with people in open source that had already published a book as well. And I, I, one of the objectives of me growing up was that I should publish a book at some point, become a published author. Um, there are a lot of things that I've done that I that uh, that I take for slightly for granted, like like becoming a Microsoft MVP as well is something that I sort of stopped caring about for a bit. I care about it again now, uh, but for a while I was like, yeah, I'm Microsoft MVP. I've been one for a while. It's it's fine. It's just another thing. And like like I mentioned, begin writing a book as well is just another thing. It's not something that defines me anymore. Whereas while I was trying to achieve it, it was like I have to become a published author. Uh, but maybe maybe a few um, side tracks that I've taken over there. But jumping back, making connections with people, someone over there was like, hey, you want to write this book? I was like, yes, I would love to write a book. I want to be a published author at some point. So so got that contract with APRES. And then the flow looks like um, you first have to pitch in a complete overview of what the different chapters would look like. So So the different chapter statements, chapter titles, followed by a brief description. Uh, that goes through a review process. Once that is accepted, then you start writing. Um, and within that, it's like you have at, at max, you, you sort of can discuss your own publishing schedule and they are quite um, like lenient with that. But from, from my particular case, I went with every 30 days, I'll deliver a new chapter. And at this point, I think that's not a hard thing to do. But at, when I was writing the first one, it was quite an intensive process because I think I didn't have the same level of pre-baked solutions to how I would teach a number of these things back then. Like like now I know how I would want to teach JavaScript. I can do it impromptu as well. But first like, okay, so here are all the things that I know and here are all the things that I want to teach. How do I schedule it so that the person has a nice track while learning these things? And what are the assumptions that I'm making that the person already knows if I'm going to be teaching things like this? And what are all the things that I can squeeze in? Because it's not a JavaScript book, right? It's a, it's a Node.js book, but I but it's a beginning Node.js book. So I sort of have to understand that this person might be new to JavaScript as well. So what are the critical portions that I can share like in the JavaScript chapter kind of things? Um, so a lot of effort went in there. So 30 days was actually quite a challenging thing. And then once that is done, it, you get a, your own reviewer, who technical reviewer, who will review all of those things for you. And then there are <laughs> someone just traveled drove by with the sports car. Um, then there are other published authors that are reviewers or community people that are that will review your uh, stuff as well. They're mostly there for not not providing enough feedback. They they will provide feedback, of course, but they're most like uh, providing. Um, statements for, hey, this book is great for this this person. I had a great time reading this kind of thing. 
Um, but the technical review will go through, check all the grammar stuff as well, and make sure that the book is technically accurate. And then they'll send that review back to you. And then you have the final say of, hey, I agree with this change. I don't agree with this change. I think this is fine the way it is kind of thing, uh, which is, of course, very like you still have the final say. But it's great to have that resource that makes sure that this is quality content that's being produced. This is sort of why the publishing house exists, right? This is why, like, like when you read a book by a press, it's normally going to be quite decent. Um, so that happens, and then it goes into the publishing, goes to print, goes to Amazon, goes to all of those places. Then the second book that I wrote was uh, TypeScript Dive, which I self-published. That was really me writing notes on my learning of TypeScript and what I think that people should know about TypeScript if you want, they wanted to become an expert in that. And that was very true for the time that I wrote it. I don't think that book is particularly up to date at this point um, because a lot of the new content that I've done is on um, YouTube. But interestingly, because that book has been around for a while, that gets the, like, if someone thinks about the works that I've delivered, quite commonly they'll gravitate to it. Hey, this is the person that wrote the TypeScript D dive. I learned TypeScript using that because it was there first and it was accurate then. And even so, so that feeds back into new people still reading it and saying that, hey, this is a great book. I I, I don't know what's magical about that book, <laughs> but like it has eleven thousand stars on GitHub. I, at this point, I would be it would be twenty thousand. The last time I checked, it was like fifteen or something. Um, but yeah, that's the second book. All right. Um, if you were, if someone were to approach you and ask, would you recommend just going ahead self-publishing or? going through with uh, a publishing house and, and so definitely publish one book with the with the and i've heard this from other authors as well you want to publish one book with a publishing house that's that gives you a real insight into how 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 you deliver quality it's sort of like uh, going to uni like i don't think that it's necessary to go to uni in, in order to become a software developer and i don't think it's necessary to go to a publishing house in order to author a great book but if you want someone holding your hand and uh, develop a bit of self-confidence, which some people can develop even without going through a process like this, then for that, I think it's great. Cool. And you've, uh, you mentioned you've got YouTube videos, um, mm -hmm. I think an online course, um, is the process similar, you know, obviously in, in the case of YouTube, you have to speak and it's real time, but um, is, are you still planning out lessons and content in a similar sort of way? What are the differences? Yeah, that's what sort of what I was talking about, that publishing a book at this point seems much easier than creating YouTube content. The level of engagement is, is significantly different. Once a YouTube video is published, you are in direct contact with your audience and then you have a very, very direct name for yourself, perhaps, compared to and like facial recognition as well, if, if you decide to put your face on it and then community recognition. And it's, I find it just a much more creative flow. Like, like I'm learning about audio, I'm learning about video, I'm learning about presentation skills, I'm learning about how to explain things in real time versus if I would write a script, it would be different. But the amount of research I put into a YouTube content is actually more than the amount of research I perhaps put into writing because Writing is a one-time thing. YouTube feels like, because you can, you can publish a reta. Someone else will review what you write as well, people. And especially when you're self-publishing, because 
definitely you'll probably have it on GitHub and people will provide comments and then you can update the new version. Whereas with YouTube, if you say something that's incorrect, it's perfectly fine to do that. I just want to be clear about that. But it sort of stays there. You have to do a new recording if you want those corrections done. Whereas with a Word document, you just new PR, modification done, sent. Um, and people do choose to be more lenient with YouTube. I personally choose to be a bit more strict and make sure that everything I say is well-researched. I think with technical things as well, there's a certain challenge with books. One of the differences between a good writer and one that's not as good is that you have to logically set out a plan, I think, for the book. Every mm -hmm. idea builds on the previous idea. You know, Matt's books are similar. Um, technical things have to work this way. And I... I feel that a book would be a lot less forgiving because um, for all the reasons that you said, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you skip over something, let's suppose it's a, a, you know, it's in a lecture, a uni course or something like that, you'll get questions and you'll fill up the gaps. Um, but a book, you can't really do that. Exactly like you said, the best you can hope for is releasing a errata, a next edition or something like that. But it's not really a solution. You have to plan it out and it has to be logical. Yes. And I think that, that, you know, in my opinion, that's what separates a really good author from someone who's not as good. You know, it's not just about how well you understand your the technical areas. It's how you can communicate those ideas so that someone else can pick up the book and understand it. So I think, you know, like, I'm certainly not a, a, a published author with, you know, a publishing house, but... You know, in the writing that I've done, it's something I have definitely found to be a challenge. Um, yeah. I, so yeah. I definitely want to clarify that a bit. So with a book, while you are working on the book, the editing process is much easier. So you write something new and then you're like, okay, I can actually, should have probably described this thing as well. And I can go to chapter one and I can sort of make modification before it goes to publishing. Whereas with the video series, if you're on lesson five and you'll say, oh, this, this also needs this particular concept. Then you have to go back to maybe either record lesson one or then you have to put another lesson between four and five to sort of talk about that topic specifically. Cool. So and planning out YouTube is a bit harder for me. Yeah, continue, yeah. sorry. And I think um, it, I've, I think, uh, you know, we've covered a lot. I was just wondering, um, what are sort of the next things that you want to tackle or, you know, new languages you want to learn, new media you want to teach in or anything else? Um, languages I want to learn, Rust is definitely at the top of my list. I've read a number of articles on Rust, um, but I have yet to set up my development environment for Rust. It's <laughs> it, it's a bit of, um, there's so much to learn in JavaScript as well, right? Like right now I'm, I'm learning about Expo, and this is not perhaps the thing that I want to be learning as well, but this is the one that's more, most aligned with my day job and my the delivery of my team at work, which is why I'm learning Expo and sort of trying to teach Expo. Expo, in case you're curious, is um, what you use to build React Native applications. It's a platform on top of React Native provided by this company also called Expo, which allows you to sort of publish, like build your apps in the cloud instead of having to build them locally, having a like Xcode and Android Studio and all of those things set up. And then a number of other features, Expo, I can talk about that for days, but nonetheless. So there's so much to learn within JavaScript. There's so much for me to work on on my skills as well in terms of being a great um, developer within my organization. Like I would, um, although I'm familiar with a number of AWS services and I've used a number of AWS services myself, 
And um, so in terms of developing AWS, I'm perfectly fine, but I would, like, like I mentioned, I, I feel like I don't, haven't learned something unless I teach it. So I would like to do a course teaching AWS at some point as well. Um, but in that in that grand scheme of things, the, the language that I want to learn beyond the current skill set that I have is Rust. Yeah, there's something about Rust that um, I personally haven't written more than Hello World in Rust. But if you go online, people love that language and it makes no sense to me at all mm -hmm. because um, it just seems like a more complicated C++. Um, mm -hmm. So I think... Yeah, I can. I can definitely see. I'm definitely curious about it as well. Um, yeah, it's for me. It's about about learning the different concepts. So most programming languages bring some new concept. Like TypeScript brings type safety, which is not a new concept. But then it also brings concepts like mapped types and conditional types, which sort of like allow you to build complete programming languages purely within the type system without actually running any code. Like if you if you run that code through Node.js, you'd get nothing. But if you hover over the different types, you can actually calculate math as well within those type definitions. The thing that Rust brings is this concept of borrow checker and understanding that is something is something that I already have. And I sort of think about ownership of data when working with TypeScript as well. But th th that's sort of why I want to learn the different languages to, to get these concepts about programming language concepts that, is, that they sort of push towards the forward. And that the borrow checker is the one that strikes for me for Rust. Yeah, I always wondered um, if, and, and again, this is coming from someone who's never used the language, is that something important for, um, let's suppose you're a JavaScript developer. Um, I can understand mm -hmm. if you're in that sort of C, C++ world where you're managing your own memory um, and then you have to deal with uh, uh, pointers to memory that's already been deleted, these sorts of issues. Um, mm -hmm. Is that still important if you have a garbage collector? Yeah, so there's a excellent talk on, on JavaScript garbage collection by, by a member of Google working on the V8. And the statement was that I have a few suggestions for you if you want to avoid memory leaks. Uh, the first suggestion is don't do programming. Uh, so garbage collection is something that that is inevitably sorry um, memory leaks is something that you will inevitably have to deal with um, if not in your own code in in v8 potentially that can happen as well but within javascript it's actually quite easy to have memory leaks fundamentally because of the concept of closures so when you have a function that takes a value and then returns another function fundamentally the inner function now has a close has closed over the value that you passed in and has now access to that as long as the function that you return wants to read that value it can. Let me give you an example. We take, and for the audience example, we take an array of uh, 100,000 items, give it to a function, and then that function returns a new function which simply logs the length of the array that's passed in. As long as this return function exists, the original array is going to stay in memory, which is not a big deal because you don't normally have a 100,000 item array that you return from a function, but because a lot of code works on top of callbacks, and now like we have promises, so a lot of code potentially doesn't work on top of callbacks, but promises still that that async function, as long as that is not run till completion, it's going to hold on to that data that it contains. Cool. But then a lot of events in front-end programming continue to be on callbacks, like on-click, 
on tap, on double press, whatever, they are functions. So as long as those functions exist, any variable that they try to reference will also have to be, continue to be existing within memory and they cannot be garbage collected. So one of the issues that we have with mobile, because like on the web, people join the website, they leave the website and there's an expectation, hey, you can refresh the website at any point. And as long as the URL is the same, you're going to get the same page. On a mobile, you don't have that luxury. You, you cannot just refresh the current page that you are on. So if we don't manage the JavaScript memory correctly, the mobile apps will crash. So memory management is still something that we have to care about when we're working on high performance systems or systems that are designed to not restart as enough. That's uh, interesting. Um, I wouldn't have, uh, that idea didn't come to my head straight away, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I guess uh, just before we go, um, we've discussed a whole bunch of things. Was there anything else you wanted to cover um, that you think the audience might find really interesting? Uh, I just want to point out like that the idea of memory management and like researching a lot of these things, like I have known about memory for a while, right? But I'd only recently created my course, uh, JavaScript for Professionals, currently released on Udemy. And for that, I did a very deep research into what the memory management looks like and how you would debug memory issues. And like the debugging issues for memory issues are still hard. I, I want to be clear about that, but identifying them visually in code and understanding how memory works, that's something that I did a deep research on, particularly for the objective of teaching that, which gave me this understanding that I just shared. Um, anything else particularly interesting? I think you've covered everything that I'm working on pretty much and uh, beyond as well. Like Rust is not something that I'm actively learning, but that's definitely on my radar. So thank you for that. Cool. Um, I think when this goes out, I'll make sure to add links to all your socials, your courses, um, these sorts of things. If people want to hear more from you, where's the best place that they can uh, find you on the internet? Uh, most active on Twitter, but you could just basarat.com. So my name, I'm very lucky that my name is unique enough that, and I was early enough on the internet race that I have that name at .com. So basarat.com and you'll find everything that I'm working on. Uh, that's um, B-A-S-A-R-A-T.com. Excellent. Thank you, Daniel. Cool, cool. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really great to chat. I think uh, I had a great time. I think I learned a fair bit and uh, I appreciate just uh, you taking the time to sit down. Thank you so much for having me. All right, cool. Thanks.